There's a line in that last song, fill this place. That concept comes from the Old Testament when the Spirit of God would descend on the tabernacle in a cloud and Moses and Joshua couldn't walk into the tabernacle. And yes, I mean, being that close to God's glory probably would have killed them. But the idea of God's presence, God's glory being filling the tabernacle, it, it, was, it was so thick that Moses and Joshua couldn't walk in. There wasn't room for them because of how thick it was. And so that's the idea behind that song is we want God's glory and God's presence to be so thick that we can't move without him moving us. And so that's why we're singing that song. That's the point of that song. And that segues into this concept that we're going to be talking about here in Luke chapter 9. How can I have a great life? I mean, really, as Christians, the question we ask is, according to Jesus, how can I have a great life? I mean, watching TV or flipping through social media and seeing the ads pop up, the way we have a great life is defined in different ways, right? And we get told, you buy this car, you're going to have a great life. You uh, buy this pair of shoes, your life will be that much greater. You experience this hamburger, your life will be that much greater. Well, it might be, depending on the hamburger. You go to all these different avenues, your life might be this much better or greater, you have this much money in your bank account, you sneak this tax loophole, your life will be greater. Uh, uh, you order this one more thing on Amazon Prime and your life will be greater. And you'll, you know, you, you're following the UPS truck on the app, on the live map, and it comes to your house and you're excited when the package gets there and then you open it and the excitement disappears until you click buy now on the next thing on Amazon and your life will be that much greater. But in reality, you know, it doesn't really make our life any greater, even though that's what the commercial sells us. If you buy this thing, your life will be one step closer to being great, what you always dreamed it would be. But the thing that we don't realize, and I think none of those commercials tell us, is that great, you know, a great life cannot be achieved. A great life can only be received from the one who is great, Jesus See, we can work all day long to try to have a great life, and it's not going to get any greater because that's going to be based upon our own efforts. And if it's based on our own efforts, we fail one time, the greatness disappears. But if it's based on Jesus, <laughs> the greatness is always there because we didn't make it happen. And so a great life can only be received. It cannot be achieved. And Jesus is going to give an example of what we're going to see today in teaching his disciples of how that greatness can be received. We're going to be in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 46. Luke 9, verse 46. Uh, if you're using a Bible on the pew rack there, it's on page nine, or 867. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, you can just take that Bible home with you. That's your free gift. Uh, just take it with you. Luke chapter 9, verse 46. So if you're, again, if you're looking on the pew Bible, it's down in the the bottom right-hand corner of page 867. Or if you're watching online, it'll be on the screen. You can check it out there as well. See, Jesus has been doing his ministry for a little while, and his disciples have been along for the ride. I mean, they've seen him uh, uh, heal people, raise people from the dead. They've seen him feed 5,000. Uh, they've seen him uh, uh, do so walk on water. 
Um, they say among themselves and to other people, he is the son of God. And they're right there with him. And, and there's been a time when Jesus has sent them out with the ability to heal people and cast out demons and do miracles just because of their, their proximity to Jesus. And what goes along with that, we're going to find out, there's a little pride that comes with that. I mean, they're human just like you are. And they're able to do physically some things that no one else is able to do. Not because they're remarkable, but because the one they follow is. But it still goes to their heads a little bit. Let's look at verse 46 of Luke chapter 9. So an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. So <laughs> there's a lot going on just even in that verse. Not only do they consider themselves to be better than other people, the 12 of the disciples are arguing which one of the 12 is better than the other guys. You know, as, if you have kids or you have brothers or sisters or even just close friends, I know, you know, sometimes that argument is in there as well, even if it's just in the back of your mind, which one of you is greater than the other one. Uh, you, you, even just among our, ki our own kids, when they're playing a game, you know, you don't want to lose the game to your brother. And so it's, oh, well, the, the, you know, it wasn't fair the way you won. Or we, we, you know, it's not right. You know, we got to play fair and be equal and all this, or I'm better than you. And, and so here you have these disciples, and they're thinking, well, you know, I cast out more demons than you did. Or, you know, Peter, James, and John. Well, Jesus took us up on the Mount of Transfiguration. I mean, you guys, Thaddeus, you weren't there, you know. So we're a little bit better, better than you. And, and John, well, Peter, I didn't cuss like you did, so I'm a little bit better than you. And they're having this argument. Who's the best disciple? And they're traveling down the road having this discussion. But when they would travel, because Jesus was Jesus, and he did miracles, and he taught and especially teachers of the day when they would travel and teach, it's not just the disciples who were traveling with them. There's usually a, a flock of people around them. And they're not just all clustered in one group. I mean, they're traveling like a little caravan. And so they're all spread out on the road. And so the disciples aren't like surrounding Jesus in this moment. So the, the imagery is they're behind Jesus a little ways and they're having this discussion kind of in hushed tones to try to not allow Jesus to hear what they're saying. And Jesus, he can't physically hear them, but he's Jesus. And so he knows the discussion that's going on, and they're, saying, they're arguing which one is the greatest and why the other one's not so great. Uh, and so this is going on. Uh, verse 47. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. So in among the crowd, there were parents and kids, and so there's a child there, and so he just pulls the child over with the parent who's there nearby, and he turns to his disciples, calls them over, and he makes this statement, verse 48. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So their argument was about who was the greatest, not who was the least. And so... Jesus kind of flips it on its head and says, no, it's he who is the least, that's who is the greatest in the kingdom of God. Well, look at the next verse. This is John's response to this statement from Jesus. Same conversation. Jesus said, whoever's the least, that's who's the greatest in the kingdom. And 
responding to their discussion about who is the greatest. And so this, verse 49, John blurts out. Now, you've got to know, walking into this statement from John, uh, most Bible scholars, really smart Bible people that I've read, believe John was the youngest of the disciples. That's why he lived so long, on into the A.D. 90s. They believe he may even have been a teenager at this point. And so John answers Jesus with this statement. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. So John says, Jesus, we tried to stop him because he's not on our team. We tried to stop him because he's not one of us. We tried to stop him because he doesn't go to First Baptist to Queen. I mean, maybe that's, in your, not, that's not in your translation. It's my translation. Okay. Verse 50. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. The one who is not against you is for you. Now, you may have heard the inverse of this statement. Jesus says that in other places. He who is not for you is against you. He does say that in other places. But here, in this particular context, he says, the one who is not against you is for you. So he, he's trying to instruct all his disciples, even though it was John who made the statement. We saw someone casting out demons in your name, but we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. So John tried to shut this man down, this, this guy, someone who's trying to do something else. We don't, it doesn't really say why John tried to shut him down. Instead of lifting him up, he tried to stop him. I mean, possibly because he didn't think this person knew as much as they did. I mean, they spent day in, day out with Jesus all over the place. But John and the disciples tried to stop him, almost as though they wanted the good things and, and the blessings to be on their own work and the things that they did and not somebody else. Almost as though they were jealous, maybe, just trying to stop him from doing that. He did, they didn't think this man had the authority or the right to be able to do something in Jesus' name because this guy wasn't there with them all the time. And so they tried to stop him. And Jesus kind of rebukes John a little bit and the other disciples for being a part of that stopping mess. And so Jesus tells them, do not stop him. The one who's not against you is for you. You see, what the disciples had done is they had misidentified this other man as, not, as an enemy. I mean, they tried to shut him down. And that's a, a key strategy of the enemy. Misidentifying our allies is a primary strategy of the enemy. Misidentifying our allies is a leap towards defeat. The enemy tries to get us, I mean, the real enemy, Satan, tries to get us to misidentify who our real allies are. So that if we misdirect our focused energy against someone who's not really our enemy, then we don't see the real enemy. I mean, he does this in marriage. He does this in churches. I mean, we're supposed to be on the same team, working towards the same goal of bringing people to Jesus, and we consider somebody in our own church as an enemy of the gospel, or even somebody in our own town who goes to a different church. If we're pursuing the gospel, they're not our enemy. We're on the same team. The same team. Whether it's First Assembly or Kern Heights or Rock Hill, they're the same team. Same, I mean, Bobby at Kern Heights, man, loves Scripture. He loves Jesus. Ray at First Assembly, you're not going to find somebody who likes to tell more people about Jesus than Ray Reynolds. You just need to go to lunch with him. Everybody around is going to know about Jesus. 
These people love Jesus. We're on the same team. And Jesus is telling his disciples, it's the same team. Don't misidentify who your enemy is. There, there's, I don't you know, it's, it's Independence Day. You know, growing up in my household, uh, when I was a kid, my dad's a music minister. Uh, my mom was a piano teacher. So we watched musicals a lot, all the time. If there's a musical out there, we watched it. Uh, one of my favorite musicals growing up was 1776, about the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And um, it's, it's the Continental Congress, and the, the main character is John Adams, who spearheaded the, you know, the Declaration of Independence. And everybody, the, the way it's told in the musical, everybody hated John Adams. There's a whole song about him being obnoxious and disliked, uh, and he knows it, because this, he said his whole mission on earth was to get this through, independence. Um, but there's a scene in the movie uh, where one of the uh, guy, one of the, the members of the Continental Congress had to leave uh, because he had cancer and he was going to go home and die. Uh, but they went and got him and brought him back. And actually, history records this. He came back into the room. He was a, uh, I can't remember what delegation he was a part of. Maybe it was Delaware or something. Um, but Delaware was going to end up voting against independence, which would have shut it down because it had to be an anonymous vote. But he rode all through the night, cancer-ridden, to get there to vote. And as he walked into the room, they were calling for the vote. And so there would not be independence without this man. His name was Caesar Rodney. And in the movie, it's depicted as they're screaming at each other. Some of the states didn't want independence, um, at least in the way we, we got it. And, they were, and, and one of them points at John Adams and says, he's our enemy, and Caesar Rodney He's an older guy. He's got this cancer in the movie, and he stands up. He says, no, the enemy's not in here. The enemy is out there. He says, no, the enemy's right there, and he points right at John Adams, and Caesar looks right back at that guy in his face who's, who's all anger, and he says, no, no, the enemy is out there. There's sometimes we can get so caught up in, in things that are not of eternal value that we miss the point the enemy is out there. We may not like each other sometimes. We may get on each other's nerves. We may disagree on some points of political nature or even some points of scriptural truth. But if we agree on the gospel, we're not enemies. We're not at all. The enemy is out there, and we can't forget it. And the enemy, the enemy, Satan, is going to try to get us to misidentify who the, tr the true enemy is. And if he can do that, he can break us down. If he can bring disunity to the church of God, big C, capital C, church, unified church of God, if he can bring disunity to the church of God and make us infight and bicker at each other, then he can cripple our effectiveness. We can't misidentify our enemies. You say, well, they call me an enemy and they attack me. That doesn't mean you have to fight them back. That doesn't mean you have to hit them back. I think there's something Jesus said about turning the other cheek. Isn't that in Scripture somewhere? And that wasn't necessarily when they hit you in the face. That was, that, that, that was a, a first century statement of if somebody offends you. Turn the other cheek so they can offend you again. Let it happen again. Like, okay, what else you got? Let me have another one. Offend me again. You didn't insult my, you know, my hairstyle. Let's, let's go there. You know? you, you know, just, just, he, he says, just let it be. Paul actually says in Corinthians, it's better to be cheated in court 
than to lose your witness for the gospel. That means the way he's stating, Paul is stating it in that context was, if somebody sues you, it's better for them to take every penny you have and then hear the gospel from your mouth than you assert your rights and then miss the gospel. Because for all these guys, the gospel is the most important thing. The gospel is the most important thing. And Jesus is trying to get his guys to understand this. That guy over there who, who's casting out demons in the name of Jesus, Jesus is telling John, that's not your enemy. He's on our team. He's doing a good thing. God's name is being proclaimed. He's doing a good thing. You know, actually, Paul says in, in, in Galatians chapter 6, as often as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. That means other believers. Let us be kind to other believers. Let us do good to other believers. Let us do good to other believers. Not blast them on social media, not blast them in our gossip circle up at the restaurant downtown, not, not blast them as a prayer request, but do good to other believers. Because people are watching us. Even if we think nobody can hear us, people are watching. Do good to other believers. Jump back into the passage, Luke chapter 9. Uh, look at there at verse 48. Right before John makes his words, uh, Jesus said, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now, that word receives is interesting. It means to accept somebody's presence with friendliness, to honor someone as a guest, to give them honor. Receive them. Give them honor. And if you give them honor, you're giving me honor. You give me honor, you're giving the Lord, God, honor. Give honor in my name, he says, on Jesus' behalf. Because on Jesus, give them honor on my behalf. Give them honor because you're a representative of me. Give them honor. Welcome them. Give them honor because of what Jesus has done for you, no matter what they've done for you or what they've done to you. Give them honor. Receive them with friendliness, with a welcome, as an honored guest. Now, it's interesting. It, give them honor. Anybody, everybody, even somebody who's doing something else that you want to receive the good things from the thing they're doing, it looks like they're being successful. You want the success they're getting, but that's not the role God gave you. You need to follow the obedience of the Lord in where you're at now. But give honor in how you treat other people. In his name, as a representative of Jesus, because of what he's done for you. So you will either allow the honor you have for Jesus affect how you honor all people, or the honor you have for all people will reveal how much you really honor Jesus. I'm going to say it again. Just think about that for a second. You will either allow the honor you have for Jesus affect how you honor all people, or the honor you have for all people will reveal how much you really honor Jesus. Because <laughs> Jesus receives the lowest amount of honor that we give anyone else. You say, wait a minute, that's, that's, what do you mean Jesus receives the lowest amount of honor? Well, Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 5. As you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. 
And so the lowest amount of honor we give somebody else is a reflection of how much we really honor Jesus. Because if we honor Jesus with our minds and our hearts, with the, 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 the fullness of who we are, then we could not help but honor those around us in the same way. Whether we're, we would discriminate because of a, a person's skin color or because of a, 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 the style of clothes they wear or because of uh, a socioeconomic status or because of a past mistake someone has made and, and, and we give them dishonor instead of honor, what we're doing in turn actually is dishonoring Jesus in all capacities. You say, yeah, preacher, you don't know what that person did to me. Mm. Mm. They did such and such and they did so and so and they made those decisions and they need to live with them. They do. You do. You saying your sin is not as bad as anybody else's sin? Sin is sin. And if we don't offer the grace Jesus offered us, who do we think we are? <laughs> Jesus offers forgiveness to everybody. You know what's actually in the Lord's Prayer? We did it the other night in our, in our family devotion. We got to that part of, of the gospel. And he says, forgive me as I have forgiven others. You ready to pray that? That means not even just people who've wronged you, but people you've spoken against, people you have dishonored. Forgive me as I have forgiven everybody else. I don't want to pray that to Jesus. <laughs> I don't know about you. I definitely want more forgiveness than I give out. I know I should be giving out more forgiveness. I know it. I pray it every morning. God, help me forgive as you forgive. That's a hard prayer to pray and mean it. But that's what he's saying here. That's what he's saying here. That the honor we have for all people reveals how much we really honor Jesus. And so, but that also doesn't mean you can look at somebody else and say, well, they're dishonoring so-and-so. They, they must not honor Jesus very well. It's not about pointing fingers. It's about looking inwardly at yourself. That's what it's all about. But I want to point out another word here that blew my mind when I researched this a little bit. That last statement he makes in verse 48. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. He who is least. Now we read that and we kind of think, okay, he was the least. So he, someone who makes themselves the lowest, someone who, you know, humbles themselves the most, belittles themselves the most. But that's not the idea that Jesus is using in this, in this context. This is what blew my mind. Makes himself the least. He's not talking about being inferior. He's not talking about being less than here. Because the idea is someone who lifts up somebody else, someone who encourages somebody else. It's someone who elevates somebody else. That's the one who is great. And so least is not less than. Least means uh, getting a more stable position so as to raise someone else up. Because if you're picking up something heavy, I did this the other day. <laughs> the the man, guy from the newspaper came to the church. And went, I pulled out a bunch of the old papers for him to look at and take some pictures of. And uh, I got home later and Katie said, something wrong? And I had tweaked my back because those tubs are really, really heavy. And there's not a whole lot of space to maneuver, and I'd picked it up and used my back instead of my legs, and, and it turned into a bad situation. But if you're going to pick up something really heavy, you've got you've to get lower. You've got to 
lower your center of gravity in order to elevate that thing higher. And so when he says, he who is least is the one who is great, who has the great life, it means getting a more stable position so as to raise up somebody else, so as to elevate somebody else, so as to lift somebody else up higher than they are right now. It's getting a stable position to lift them up, to encourage them, to, to raise them up. Greatness in the kingdom comes from an elevation of others. Greatness in the kingdom comes from an elevation of others, elevating other people above yourself. And, you should, and I know I can see it on your faces. Some of you are thinking, well, so-and-so is not very great because they don't elevate me. That's a prideful thought. Saying, well, they need this word because, man, they are screwed up. Maybe so, but so are you. If we're too busy pointing fingers at other people and not focused on where God wants us to be, we're completely missing the point of Scripture. <laughs> completely missing the point. We've got to get a stable position. Our, sta our position isn't very stable if we're too busy pointing out other people's faults. We need to get a lower, more stable position so as to raise up, elevate somebody else. Craig Rochelle said it this way. He's the pastor of the largest church in America. He said, if you think something nice, say it. Don't let it sit in you. Too, too often, if we think something not nice, we say it. We need to keep that mess in. We need to stop that. If you think something nice, let it come out. Don't let it sit there, ever. The second you think something nice about someone, say it. Send them a text. Hey, I was thinking about you and what you did. If you think something nice, if you think something kind, say it about your kids, about your parents, about your spouse, about your friend, about your neighbor, about some random person you haven't seen in 10 years. If you think something kind, say it, text it, post it, get it out. Say it. Elevate someone else. It will begin to, if, if we begin to operate this way, it transforms our entire way we think, which is the, the gist of what Paul wrote in Philippians. Uh, it's Philippians 4, 8. Because this is how we should think. We should only think about things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent. Things that are worthy of praise. Anything that doesn't, fall on that list should not be in our mind. That doesn't mean it won't enter. I mean, you can't control what comes into your head. Satan's going to bring stuff, random stuff that you see is going to bring memories. You can't control what comes in. You can control what stays there and what you usher out the back door. I was talking with someone the other day, and they were like, well, I cannot get it out of my head. I said, well, you've got to replace it with something else. He said, every time that thought comes in your head, you do another day on your Bible reading plan. Just turn the audio on and let the words come in and it will replace that. You say, but sometimes it just keeps coming. Then do another day. It's got 365 on that plan I gave you. Keep doing them until it's gone. Keep going. Allow those things that are true and honorable and just to, to permeate you and change everything about who you are. Allow it to transform your insides out. And then we encourage one another from what we have within us and elevate one another from what we have within us. 
See, in, in, in Hebrews, I think I, I put this in on there, didn't, didn't I, Alyssa? Hebrews chapter 3, the author here gives us a warning that if we don't encourage one another, if we don't elevate one another, what happens? He says, watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. I love that verse. As long as it is called today, which is every single day, it's like every day of the week that ends in Y kind of situation. I imagine this guy's a dad, and that's a dad joke. Encourage one another daily while it is still called today that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. That word encourage there in verse 13, that's an imperative word. It's a command. Encourage one another. But it, that verse also starts with the word but. And so that means that it is the opposite of what just happened. So the opposite of encouragement, what happens within us when we do not encourage is verse 12. That evil, unbelieving heart turning us away from God. That's in us if we don't encourage other people. We get an evil heart that is acting as though it does not believe and it turns us away from God and on to things we don't need to be focused on, things we don't need to be thinking about, things that don't need to be in the life of a spirit-filled believer. The less encouragement we offer, the more that that evil, unbelieving heart grows within us and turns us away from God. And the more encouragement we offer, the more our heart turns back to the Lord. But you know, think about encouragement. It doesn't have to be to somebody's face. The way you speak about somebody to somebody else is an encouragement. And it can, somebody told me uh, something that somebody had said that was encouraging about me a few weeks ago. And man, I coasted on that for days. They didn't say it to me, they said it to somebody else. Encouragement can even be in your own head, how you speak about somebody in your own mind. Because it, that, sometimes that's what we need to do is we need to change the way we think. Because if we are constantly thinking negative thoughts about somebody else and we're thinking discouraging thoughts about somebody else and we think we're keeping it in, it's going to come out. Either in words or maybe just in looks. We see them walk down that aisle at Walmart. We may not say anything, but we can give them one of those. And like, mm, like, I hate you looks. Like, mm, I can't believe, oh, look what's in your cart. Uh-huh. You be the kind of person who buys that you know, kind of a situation. But that's because the poison is inside and it leaks out our face. But if there's no poison inside, if all we've got inside is that stuff from Philippians chapter 4, whatever is true and honorable, if that's what's inside, then that begins to leak out in how we look and how we act and how we interact and how we speak and how we respond to the news of the day to the political news of the day, to someone's political post, or to somebody's post about people like me. How we respond is reflective of the amount of Jesus we're demonstrating in that moment. Jesus responded to John with patience and kindness, but also correctedness and showed him the way back. and said, John, man, the greatness in the kingdom is not about tearing somebody else down. Greatness is elevating others. Greatness is elevating others. 
I think we're going to get to heaven one day and discover there's many things that we misunderstood about life. And we elevated so many things to a level of importance that really had no level of importance. Greatness is about elevating others. How you speak to other people. I heard it said one time, I mean, just in responding in how you speak to your own kids, the, the, the tone and the words you say to your children will become their inner voice later in life. That's deeply convicting. <laughs> but it's the way also with each other. The tone and the words we say to each other can become an internal conversation, or we may be even be handing the enemy weapons to use in the minds of somebody else down the road if we're not offering words of encouragement and pointing to Jesus at every opportunity. Greatness in the kingdom is not dependent upon how much money you have. Greatness is in the kingdom isn't dependent upon how nice your clothes are. Greatness isn't in the kingdom isn't dependent upon your job title or how nice your house is or what your yard looks like. Greatness in the kingdom is dependent upon elevating others. I mean, here, Jesus, what did he do the night before his crucifixion? He washed his disciples' feet knowing in about an hour every one of them are going to run from him. Knowing in the next few minutes one of the guys that he's washing the feet of is going to bring betrayal. Peter's going to deny Jesus three times. All those guys are going to hide in a locked room for seven days because they are afraid Jesus' resurrection wasn't real, even if, when they see him with their own eyeballs. They're going to stay in that locked room for seven days after Jesus rose. But Jesus still washed their feet. Jesus still loved them, knowing they were about to do that. He elevated them. He elevated you in how he treats us and how he loves us. In, in coming to die in the first place, he elevates all of us. He offers us great encouragement with his availability, with his word. In one of the Psalms I was reading this morning, it was, uh, it, it was incredible. I think it was Psalm 24 or 25. The words, I had to go back and listen to it again. I had to make sure I had it highlighted in my scripture. It was, the power of God's encouragement can come even in something you've heard a thousand times before. But it can resonate with you in a moment that you weren't prepared for before. He offers encouragement continually. He, can, he came to elevate us from where we often find ourselves. And so at the very base root of it, you have to ask yourself, do I need Jesus to elevate me at the beginning to eternal life? Do you need Jesus to elevate you to eternal life? Whether you're in the room, you're watching online, we all need that at some point. This past week, there were eight little kids that needed Jesus to elevate them to eternal life. And they believed. Man, they were, one, there was one little girl, right? Amanda, she was pumped. I mean, mm, raring to go. Do you need Jesus to elevate you to eternal life today? Then there's no special words you have to say. You just have to believe that he is the son of God, that he died so all your sins would be forgiven. And then he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. And if you believe that, you have eternal life. You're saved from eternal punishment. You are a Christian. 
from this point forward, and no one can take it away from you, ever. There's nothing that you can do tomorrow that can undo what Jesus did on the cross. It's yours forever. And if you need Jesus to elevate you to that today, you can, in a moment, we're going to pray, and I'll be here. I'd love to talk to you, but you can also, last week, we had a young man uh, who came and, and wanted to get baptized, uh, and we had a little invitation after everybody dismissed. <laughs> and he's uh, 17 or 18 years old. We're going to baptize him next week. And maybe that's you. I'd love to talk to you. Everybody dismisses. I'll, I'll still be here. I'd love to talk to you. Or you can also, if you're online too, you, there's a button right below. It says, I made a decision. We're on our main page of our website, to queen.church. Right there, I think it's the second card on our website. I made a decision. You click on that, it sends an email to me on my phone, and I will call you today. And we'll talk and pray and celebrate about that. But do you need him to elevate you to eternal life? Do you need to develop a habit of encouragement to rewire your internal, you know, neurons what do they say that if you that your brain is kind of like a highway or kind of like a path or a field i guess it's kind of like a field and the more time you spend walking one way a path will be uh, uh cut there that it will take many 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 days to undo maybe you need to rewire your neurons and begin to focus on philippians 4 8 whatever is true and honorable and and um encouraging and worthy of praise and excellent. And you need to begin to think about those things. Maybe when those negative thoughts come, maybe you, like I told that guy the other day, you need to start, just do another reading plan. Put on the audio, just let it just flow in and you just focus on it until it's gone. To, and they, they say it takes about 30 or 40 days to rewire those neurons, to cut a new pathway. So if you get frustrated in seven days because it hasn't happened yet, well, you haven't been at it long enough. It's like when I quit P90X after 30 days. You got to do it for 90 for something to happen. I got frustrated after 30 because nothing was happening. You got to go the whole length of the deal for it to make a difference, for it to make a change, to convert those neurons to a new pathway and let the other one grow over. So maybe that's you. Maybe you need to develop a new habit of encouragement. Maybe you need some encouragement. Maybe all you feel like you get is discouragement everywhere you turn, and you're tired. You're tired of trying to persevere through the discouraging fog that seems to come at every turn. And guess what we're going to do? If that's you, you know what? Everybody just close your eyes real quick. Bow your heads. This is what I'm speaking to you right now. If that's you, and you feel like all you have is discouragement, and you need some encouragement, you just need, no matter how you say, well, so-and-so's got it worse than I do. I'm not talking about so-and-so. I'm talking about you. If, if you feel discouraged, if you feel discouraged and you need some encouragement, I want you to raise your hand. I'm going to pray for you right now. If you need some encouragement, even on a minor level, I see you. Raise your hand. If you just need some, raise your hand. I see you. I know some of you are lying because I know you. If you need some encouragement in some capacity, good, 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 good. All right, I'm going to pray. God, I thank you that you came to this earth and you loved us. You loved us so much that even in your coming, 
you weren't going to leave us where we were. You came to where we were to elevate us to where you desire us to be. God, I pray for every single person who raised their hand just a second ago. Those who looked and didn't raise their hand, those who I spoke with even just a few days ago, who need your help. who are barely making it. God, I pray that you would bring them now, now, direct spiritual encouragement from the presence of your spirit flowing into their hearts with an overwhelmingly powerful spiritual voice that drowns out the voice of the enemy. And you would bring that encouragement to them. But you would also place in their lives today Someone to encourage them and lift them up and give them the awareness to see it. So that all of us then can, in turn, elevate others. Everybody in our lives. Even when we're frustrated, even when we're irritated, even to the people who are irritating us. Give us the spiritual fortitude and resolve to be spiritual elevators at every turn to everybody. Not for the sake of being called great in the kingdom, but because that is what you desire from us. That we would see somebody and we would elevate them. We would think something kind and say it we would go out of our way just to speak a kind word into somebody because you placed them on our hearts and who knows why they need that word here and now but you gave it to us for a reason God I pray we would be your vessels to elevate those around us to build them up for your purpose and your glory and your kingdom I thank you for your ministry of elevation, lifting us up, encouragement. Help us to walk lives imitating that very thing. In your name I pray, amen.